episode 22. Hydroxychloroquine. Idiot. I have a dream. I have a dream. Tonight, video has surfaced of an African-American man being chased down and killed. His family says he was just out jogging. No. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. No. I have a dream. Everything the president says is done encourages white supremacists. And I'm not sure there's much of a distinction. As a matter of fact, it may be even worse. In fact, if you're out there trying to, in fact, curry the favor of white supremacists or any group that, in fact, is anathema to everything we believe. No. No! But you also had people that were very fine people. Uh, 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 Andy, 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 wake up. You're having a bad dream. Wake up. Uh, Andy, hey, hey, wake up. It's just a dream. It's just a bad dream. Oh. Oh, man. Wow. That, that was really bad. My my heart is racing. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about it? Uh, let's see. Is Donald Trump still president? Yes. And uh, did he really give Rush Limbaugh the Medal of Freedom and say that uh, actual Nazis were very fine people? Mm. Yes, that happened. God. And are the corporate Democrats running Biden against him? The man who wrote the 86 drug bill targeting black drug users over white, which he then followed up with the 88 drug bill doubling jail time for drug offences, which he then followed up with the 94 crime bill labelling black kids of super predators, which essentially makes him the very face and front of systematic black incarceration his entire career. Well, yes. Wow. And can white guys storm government buildings with AR-15s and face no repercussions, but black guys are getting shot now for jogging? Yes. So it wasn't just a bad dream. What do you call it then when it's, when it's not a nightmare? Oh, love. It's 3 a.m. I don't know. Life? Well, we should try and get back to sleep. So it wasn't a bad dream. I knew it. More like a bad wake. Yes, a kind of a wake. A vigil held beside the body of something dead. No, what are you doing? I, I think I'm going to go work on the pod. Uh, 
Okay, love. Try and get some sleep. I will. It's <laughs> review. <laughs> it's true crime time. One of the biggest and most popular podcast genres. Today, I'm looking at three shows which all cover various aspects of crime and justice in these United States. I'm a British American, an immigrant by fate and choice. I've always felt very at home here. You know, there's so much more space to stretch out. And uh, and I really do prefer the Star Spangled Banner to uh, God Save the Queen, which, let's be honest, is a uh, dreary, servile piece of propaganda for a corrupt vampiric monarchy who should have lost 95% of their stolen land and money after either of the world wars. But anyway, one of the things that I like about the Star Spangled Banner is that the bit they always sing ends in a question. I like that there's a dialogue at play, a dialogue that gets renewed in a way every time that it's sung, even if it's only subconscious. The question, as you know, is, does the Star Spangled Banner still fly over the land of the free and the home of the brave? Come on. I mean, regardless of your take on jingoistic patriotism, it's a good question. And I think it does invite thought and analysis, even if most people are not thinking about it when they hear it. You know, they're just chomping on hot dogs and thinking about baseball or how amazing the most expensive army the world has ever seen is, even if it's only actually been used to save us from Iraqi children and uh, can't protect us from Donald Trump. But it's still a good question, because it's in there at least. So it's way better than most anthems, I think, anyway. Well, except maybe the Danish one that describes a king mashing in a Swedish brain in a battle with a broadsword. So yeah, I'm happy to be a citizen rather than a subject, and a citizen with a question. And maybe Colin Kaepernick and other respectful kneelers are answering this question every time it is asked, as is their right. And so we get to the crux of it. Does the Star Spangled Banner still fly over the home of the brave and the land of the free? What do you think? I would say perhaps not for all of us, really. Not for all of us equally. In fact, perhaps it's more of a case of uh, equality is very fungible. And some of us are way more equal than others. And I would cite as evidence for my take the three superb podcasts I'm reviewing now. First up is Serial, Season 3. So this came out in 2018 and is very much the direct follow-up to Serial Season 1, the uh, Adnam Saeed investigation. And we are back with Sarah Koenig and her journey into the criminal justice system in America. 
the breakout show serial, of course, um, zeroed in on one case. But here she takes on the task of understanding the whole justice system by embedding in the central courthouse in Cleveland and talking to everyone over many months about what goes on at every stage in the criminal justice system. So she sits down with police and judges and district attorneys and prison guards and defence lawyers and of course defendants. And we hear stories of a system under strain and people trying to do good but becoming trapped in insane Kafkaesque routines that resemble strange and deadly pantomimes. And yes, it is very damning testimony. And yes, it is compulsive listening. There are several stories uh, followed through the season. The opening case takes you step by step through the process of getting arrested and being processed and arraigned and how a woman who was assaulted in a bar somehow ends up facing charges herself and then gets loaded up with uh, fines and court fees that it's impossible that she'll ever climb out from under. You're kind of outraged by this one, um, but it really is just the beginning. And after this, it gets worse. And there are, you know, a couple of cases uh, in which police brutality occurs. And as always, she frames the issues she's talking about with impeccable research like this. A study published in 2016 found that reports of police brutality not only contribute to a, quote, spirit of legal cynicism, they also cause people to not call the cops when they need them. They make entire cities less safe. The researchers looked at 911 calls before and after an infamous case in Milwaukee, the 2004 beating of a guy named Frank Jude. They found that for a year afterwards, there were 22,000 fewer 911 calls in Milwaukee, and that residents in black neighborhoods especially were far less likely to report crime. And at the same time that people were reporting fewer crimes, murders in Milwaukee rose by 32%. One of the most memorable bits of the show is this utterly chilling conversation that she conducts with the former president of the police union, Steve Loomis, um, that I think is going to stay with me forever. We really don't care about civilian complaints. Not that we don't, <laughs> not that we don't care that we get that. We don't. My laughter here is born of shock, not mirth. I'm not going to say I like Steve Loomis. I can't get there. Some of the positions he inhabits are too awful. President Obama has blood on his hands for the police officers killed in Dallas. Or racist and anti-Muslim tweets by a CDP sergeant are the First Amendment right of every American, etc. But I appreciate Steve Loomis. I appreciate that he's got a sense of humor about himself. I appreciate that he appears to be a true believer. That he is sincere when he says even the lowliest rookie patrolman does more to help this community than any other person in government. I appreciate that Steve Loomis gave us six hours of his time in one day. Six hours. Sat there in his union office, packed with Trump paraphernalia, also one or two cartoons that I'd call racist, he'd call political, explaining his world to us, arguing with us congenially. So they get into it about Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old child who was shot and killed uh, by the Cleveland police, by a rookie cop, actually, um, while uh, Tamir was playing with an air rifle near his house. 
you probably remember the case. It was uh, from 2012, and the video footage is horrible. Uh, you see the cop car driving up really fast, and without any warning or attempt to uh, engage or disarm or discover that the uh, toy gun that Tamir is uh, has by his side is real, they jump out of the car and shoot him down within literally like a couple of seconds of arriving. Tammy Rice, yes, this uh, 12-year-old boy. Um, you know, this is America. Um, our kids are encouraged to play with toy guns. It's in our culture. Um, it's a even a ritual for many families at Christmas uh, to watch uh, the comedy film A Christmas Story in which a young kid dreams about getting the ultimate gift from Santa, a Red Rider air rifle. But you know what? That's, that's not something a black kids can really take part in. They can't take part in that slice of the American dream. We white families, we get to laugh and watch a Christmas story and uh, buy our kids air rifles. Um, but black families uh, seeing this movie, um, I can't imagine what they think. I mean, I know they will have to follow it up with another round of The Talk uh, with their kids, um, trying to explain and establish all the ways that they might get killed by the police. A police who are supposed to protect and serve us all equally, but in fact seem to dispense justice on a sliding scale depending on the amount of melanin you have in your skin. So Steve Loomis in this chilling interview on uh, Serial uh, slanders Tamia's family and blames the 12-year-old for his own death and argues uh, quite uh, ferociously that there was no other way it could have gone down. But it's clear that he's lying. We know Tamia shouldn't have been executed by the police that day because the police manage to use non-lethal force all the time. They do it when apprehending guys like Dylan Roof or Nicholas Cruz. Or they do it when uh, handling the gang of white guys who just stormed the Michigan State Capitol building armed to the teeth with AR-15s. Real guns, not toys. And they were moving and threatening with clear, bad, threatening intent. So I really recommend uh, you check out this podcast. You've got to hear this whole interview. And uh, Koenig ends up pressing him uh, Steve Loomis, the uh, president of the police union, the former president of the police union of Cleveland, for a solution, a way forward to stop these trigger-happy police killings of black people. And this is what he says. You, 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 when you're saying, why are we fixating we on these deaths? Because people are like, enough is enough is enough is enough. Yeah. They're saying it's one, one is too many. Well, one accident like this is too many. Let's fix it. it. Tamir Rice was not an accident. Tamir Rice was pulling a gun out of his waistband. All right. <laughs> but, but we're saying he shouldn't have died for it. He shouldn't so have died. How do fix that? I, this is what I'm saying. I think this is what we're all asking. We're but not, what's frustrating I'll is... We, I'll tell you how we fix that. We don't go. 
When somebody calls us and tells us that somebody's at a rec center with a gun, we don't go. That's the only way to fix that. Right? I guess I just don't buy that. Well, I'm they're, sorry. Like they're, they're I'm not selling to... <laughs> it. That's the reality. Okay. I think Steve might actually believe what he's saying here, that police are never to blame for harming someone in the line of duty. If you end up dead or hurt, it's always because of something you did or didn't do. It follows then that the only ones who need to reform are the citizens. In the name of Cleveland's 1,500 patrolmen, Steve Loomis is folding his arms. Inside his petulance is also a threat. You don't like how we do business? Fine, we'll stop arresting people. See how you like your city then. It's the same stance some police officers have taken in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in New York, in Baltimore. A cop-out. That's just unbelievable. I mean, what he's saying there, basically, is if we don't allow the police to kill people, they will go on strike. How noble, how honourable. You have a police union president, a man elected by the police to speak for them, coming out with this shit. It's a disgrace. It reminds me of another moment from another podcast I reviewed on episode 7. I.O. Tillett writes The Ballad of Billy Bowles, where they spoke with Ron Kuby, the civil rights lawyer, who, uh, as it happens, is actually from Cleveland. And here is what he said. The system embodies structural violence, and, and the most direct form of structural violence is, is the police. And, and so, you know, how many Billy Balls are you willing to allow to be killed to make sure you are safe? And the answer that most people give is just do whatever you need to do. Judges, jurors, citizens, courts, are always willing to say, well, it's too bad, but that's what happens. You know, people want to be kept safe. And part of that is not second guessing every single thing the cops do. How, how do you reconcile that, that balance between keeping the public safe and a system that embodies structural violence. I, I don't reconcile it. It's irreconcilable. So it's all on us, really. The structural violence is cooked into the system, and it's on us. I'm not quite sure, though, that it's quite as bleak and irreconcilable. We can, you know, de-escalate as a society. We can enact common-sense gun laws that will protect our police and everyone. We can make sure that black people receive the same level of service and respect from the police that Dylan Roof, Nicholas Cruz and white gun-toting terrorists get when they invade and take over state capitals or occupy government land like Clavin Bundy. So I don't think it's irreconcilable. I think I think there are very straightforward things that we can do to fix this. Back to serial. So this is an essential listen if you want to understand what is happening. How we are managing to incarcerate more people than any other country on the planet and how we are actually failing everyone in a broken system. Sarah Koenig and her team calmly pull back the curtain and it is brilliant investigative work. You have to hear it. 
And it culminates in this brilliant summation of all we have listened to and discovered. The best kept secret in the Justice Center is in the lobby. It's tucked between two pillars near the elevators. Looks like a wheel you might see at a raffle or a bingo game. But it functions as a suggestion box. You can send kites to the staff. The administrative judge will get them. He's got the key. After hanging around this building for a year, I have many suggestions, just off the top of my head. I'd say, go minimalist. Don't pile six charges onto a single crime, when one charge will do. Don't overcharge to force a guilty plea. Don't lock anyone up unless they're demonstrably violent. Admit that police officers lie under oath. Get out of the punishment business and turn toward the urgent problem of fairness. Keep obsessive track of who exactly is being charged with what crime, how their sentence shakes out, and what their life looks like in three years or five years. Take note of the color of their skin and how much money they have. Don't shove what you learn in a drawer and forget about it. Don't be insensibly tempted, as Charles Dickens wrote, into a loose way of letting bad things alone to take their own bad course. Cops, prosecutors, judges, lawyers, call out the colleagues who degrade your profession. Pay assigned attorneys and public defenders at least twice as much as you're paying them now. Judges, stop choosing those assigned attorneys. Citizens, mix up the bench. Stop electing judges countywide. And overall, slow down. Doubt yourselves. And I know how corny this sounds, but imagine that every person in the elevator car is part of your own family and reflect on the far-reaching pain of prosecution. Also, don't tape anyone's mouth shut in court. That happened. And consider getting rid of the grand jury. I could cram that will to bursting. But if I'm only allowed one suggestion, I'd say, let's all accept that something's gone wrong. Let's make that our premise. Many times during our reporting in Cleveland, when I'd ask about problems or reforms, someone would throw out, well, let's remember, we have the best system in the world. County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley said it to me. I just think people need to realize we have the best criminal justice system in the world. The people who operate that system know about the wards, and they concede we can always improve. But generally, they're not chomping for an overhaul, the kind of extreme makeover that the data is screaming at us to undertake. We've all heard the stats that we here in the United States imprison a vastly higher percentage of our population than any other country in the world. We are number one. The numbers are well-documented, wildly out of whack, and unprecedented in our history. Also well-documented, inequity. Every joint in the skeleton of our criminal justice system is greased by racial discrimination. Compared to white people who've committed the same crime and who have similar criminal histories, black people and other people of color are arrested more often, they're charged more harshly, given higher bails, offered worse plea deals, they're handed longer prison sentences, and their probation is more often revoked. These numbers aren't floating above us in the sky. They're alive all over the country. We looked at studies from New York City and Alabama and Wisconsin and Iowa's 6th District and Hampton Roads, Virginia and Harris County, Texas. It's everywhere in all our courthouses. Reporters often hear that we only report the bad stories. We exaggerate and sensationalize, especially when it comes to law enforcement or wonky prosecutions. But we didn't go to Cleveland and sift through hundreds of cases looking for the most egregious injustices we could find. We didn't have to. The ordinary ones told us everything we needed to know. Serial Season 3 gets five stars, two thumbs up, and a bit of the lie. 
by Sir Walter Raleigh. Say to the court it glows and shines like rotten wood. Say to the church it shows what's good and doth no good. If church and court reply, then give them both the lie. Next up is Motive from WBEZ Chicago, which, if you don't know, is a fabulous and greatly storied radio station. It's the originator and home uh, of a great many shows, such as This American Life and the comedy game show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and uh, stuff like my old favourite, Word Jazz, from Ken Nordine, which was a big inspiration of mine. I'll put links to a few favourite episodes from these shows in the transcript when I get that up. So Motive is a crime investigation series with two seasons, and the first one is hosted and put together by journalist Frank Main of the Chicago Sun-Times. And it's based around his reporting of the extraordinary life story of Thaddeus Jimenez, TJ. Frank Main has a sort of grizzled detective-type delivery, and he comes across as the sort of hard, case-working journalist uh, that you that might have, you know, slipped from the pages of some incredible noir crime novel. And this impression is definitely helped by the sound design, which features a uh, Tom Waits, Mark Ribbo guitar riff that is very reminiscent of the song Down in the Hole, which was used uh, very effectively as the theme tune uh, to the hit TV show The Wire. So Thaddeus Jimenez's story is a really wild ride. He's basically this young uh, kid who uh, falls into gang life in Chicago with a gang called the Simon City Royals. And at the age of 14, he gets arrested and charged with a murder of another gang member. I mean, you know, he was singled out early, uh, this kid, uh, by Chicago police because they they looked at him and spoke to him and discovered that he was a true soldier, a scary, actual gang fanatic in this world. A boy whose absolute commitment to the gang life uh, kind of, I guess, put the willies at the Chicago police, who then went on and made the judgment that everyone would be better off if he was behind bars. Which is, you know, not how the police is supposed to work. It's It's one of those weird, tragic things whereby you know that Chicago PD were probably right in some ways in the position that they were in, uh, with every instinct of their law enforcement bones twitching as they see this kid struck down the street with uh, a head full of gangster rap. Because that's the state that we're in. You know, we engineer poverty in these communities and we pay the police to protect us from it and then we have to fake uh, outrage when they shatter our white sensitive illusion that the police are out to protect and serve everyone equally not on a sliding scale of how much melanin you have in your skin or how much money and inherited wealth and privilege your family has managed to accumulate over the years Look, if the police was to protect and serve everyone equally, uh, someone would have been charged with poisoning Flint's water, and the Chicago police would be kicking in the door of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange every day for money laundering and insider trading. But it doesn't happen. So the police, very much emboldened by uh, the Clinton administration and Biden, who wrote the uh, Super Predator Crime Bill, 
that allowed police to identify TJ as a crime spree waiting to happen and lock him up uh, for a murder that he didn't commit on the dubious testimony uh, from, quote, eyewitnesses. That's the setup. And we learn about uh, gang culture in Chicago and we learn about prison culture and we meet TJ's family and then we uh, get to the remarkable turn of fortune that sees TJ released after 16 years in jail with help uh, from uh, the Innocent Project. And he gets out and his record is expunged and he wins a civil suit against the Chicago Police Department for $25 million. It's an absolute fairy tale. Um, a weird turn of fortune. So what does he do? He could do anything. He could go anywhere, be whatever he wants. But this is the kicker. He's out, a free man, but his head is still inside, in jail. He's utterly institutionalized. And I don't want to spoil it, but yes, he does end up back inside following some outrageous gang bullshit that you've got to hear about to believe. I mean, he literally started calling himself Batman on the north side and buying a fleet of luxury cars uh, to build his own uh, criminal organization. Driving around pretending to be like a Scarface criminal mastermind. But in reality, he was just this, you know, stir-crazy kid. Literally a stir-crazy street punk who can't break out of the role he was born into and then fully embraced and then baked and frozen in like Han Solo and Carbonite. So the second season of Motive uh, features an entirely different story from reporters Candice Mittal Khan and Alexandra Salomon and it covers the struggle for a large group of women foreign exchange students on study abroad programs from American universities to um, find each other and actually be believed when coming forward with uh, sexual assault allegations against a mass rapist who has hid in plain sight for a couple of decades. The struggle for women to be believed about uh, sexual assault is very much a core subject of this season and it deals with it in a very compelling way with multiple testimonies artfully arranged around an open and active pursuit for justice in the Spanish Supreme Court. And it really cuts to the core about how the patriarchy, our social system, effectively lives under the skin of us all. So that everyone's sort of first instinct when hearing from women is to minimize their experience and deny their victimhood. Here's a clip. I remember thinking, what just happened? I, I, am, I do not remember what happened. And this, like, who am I going to tell? Like, who's going to believe me? Well, you're young and of course you got drunk or I don't know. Yeah, I really thought who was going to believe me. So I didn't tell anyone. Like Sophie, so many of these women didn't think anyone would believe them. And that fear is one of the most common reasons why women don't report. Who wants to be called a liar? 
Katha Hoffer has been working with survivors of sexual assault for more than 30 years. She runs the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. If you have reason to believe that you will be treated like a liar, like somebody who is not credible, why would you do that? Especially if you are already enduring the consequences of a trauma that you can't go back in time and undo. Hoffer says women have good reason to believe they will be treated like a liar. That's how she's seen it play out in a lot of the cases she's worked on, mostly in Illinois. When women have gone to the police there, she says their accusations often aren't taken seriously. There's an 11% arrest rate for reported rapes. 89 out of every 100 rapes reported to the police result in not a damn thing happening to him. The women sharing their experiences in this podcast and overcoming the shocking indifference towards sexual assault in our culture um, deserve to be heard and deserve justice. Their testimony is brave and moving and vital. And we as men need to do better in all our male peer groups to ensure everyone understands what consent is. And we also need to take care to destroy attitudes of indifference uh, to the suffering of women. Another thing from the show I found particularly enlightening was how they identified the way how right-wing fascist movements, in this case uh, as regards to the Wolfpack case in Spain, but it's the same over here, are successfully recruiting young men to their causes by reframing the Me Too movement as a massive offensive against all men, a sort of nuclear option in some kind of terminal gender war in which the slightest attempt to address male violence on women is to be met with a massive Neanderthal counter-backlash with phrases like feminazi tossed out at any woman who will not instantly submit to male dominance in all its subtle and not-so-subtle forms. So let's see, Motive gets uh, five stars, and uh, let's give it a deer hunter for season one. And one of my favorite sketches from the Tracy Ullman show for season two. Here's your tea. Are you feeling a bit better? Not really, no. Okay, well, can you describe the man who mugged you? Um, he was about five foot ten, short dark hair. He put a knife to my throat and he demanded my phone and my watch. And were you wearing what you're wearing now? Sorry? Is this what you were wearing when it happened? Um, yes, but... You look quite provocatively wealthy. <laughs> look, I, I fail to see how what I wear has any well, bit... just a bit of an invitation, isn't it? Like you're advertising it. Look, you seem distressed. I'm going to bring one of our councillors in. This gentleman's a bit upset. He was mugged earlier. Oh, dear. <laughs> Had you been drinking? Yes, because if you'd had a drink, it can send out confusing signals. Lead somebody on with a nice suit and the phone, and then at the last minute say, I don't want to be mugged. He put a knife to my throat, and he demanded my possessions. I mean, and you just gave them to him. Did you even scream? 
See, how is somebody to know that you don't enjoy handing over your possessions unless you make your intentions clear? No, I didn't scream. You had a knife. I was really scared. And we're very sympathetic, but I'm afraid you're going to have to accept some of the responsibility for this. Come in. Finally, we've got White Lies from NPR. Now, this show has been in the news uh, because it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. It is a fascinating cold case story from the civil rights era, focusing on the events surrounding Selma and the murder of James Reeb. Reeb was a Unitarian minister from Boston who answered Martin Luther King's call for help in the aftermath of the murder of civil rights activist Jimmy Lee Jackson by the state trooper James Fowler and the Bloody Sunday clashes in which uh, racist gangs of police and white supremacist militias attacked a peaceful march with billy clubs and tear gas. So James Reeb answered Martin Luther King's call. He was a man of uh, conscience and conviction. How we are so much in need of more people like him today. And it's tragic that he was murdered by a gang of racists who they themselves were answering um, a call, uh, this time a call from George Wallace, the Alabama governor at the time, and a pervasive white supremacist legislature uh, who were actively pushing a physical fight to deny black equality movements at every level. The show wonderfully takes us back to the 60s with archival tape and interviews, and they try and solve the murder case in a direct sense, but they also broaden the context of the crime to understand it in a holistic and sociological way. So we can see directly how the white people of Selma wrap themselves in a hideous shroud of white lies to deny the truth and keep the flame of race hatred burning through, well, through to today. Because this show is incredibly pertinent to our current time. The journalists who put this together, uh, native Alabamans, Andrew Grace and Chip Brantley, really laboured hard over this show with love and care and intelligence. And it really shines through. There are a number of moments that will make the hair uh, stand up on the back of your neck. So the show features a hunt for a lost tape and uh, a long hunt for lost witnesses. And there is this startling uh, revelation and takedown of this insane conspiracy theory that sprung up at the time that James Reeb was actually killed by the civil rights movement itself on the way to hospital because killing a white minister would be the way to turn uh, the nation towards enacting civil rights legislation. So this crazy narrative was key in leading to the acquittal of the three men who were initially charged with the murder. And it's terrifying to see how lies um, emboldened by state actors and politicians can capture the hearts and minds of people to perpetuate hatred and oppression of black Americans. And of course, it echoes and reverberates loudly through to today. I'm a white man in a white neighborhood, and I'm surrounded by white lies just as pernicious as the ones that led the folk in Selma to hold their silence about the murder of James Reeb and embrace a conspiracy theory to protect themselves from real uh, self-examination. The white lies are everywhere, from Trump's birther movement to neoliberal white 
dog walkers in Central Park faking existential fear on phone calls to cops. I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. To the very idea that people marching under swastikas uh, to defend a icon of slavery are very fine people. That Rush Limbaugh deserves the Medal of Freedom. Fuck the magic Negro. That kneeling to protest police brutality is somehow disrespectful and unforgivable but watching over and over and over as police murder black people is normal that saying black lives matter should be responded to with a media megaphone that says all lives matter or as our maryland governor would have it only blue lives matter we have a police officer in our family who told me to my face after becoming annoyed at the Black Lives Matter sign in our front yard, that he thinks the Black Lives Matter movement is the actual equal and equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan. Incredible. I mean, I, I was stunned when it happened. I mean, how utterly ignorant and dismissive of over a century of terror and lynchings. I mean, it was literally jaw-dropping, and a very difficult discussion ensued, to say the least. But this is where we're at. This is what's happened. This is today. Rush Limbaugh and Fox News has turned Black Lives Matter into a hate organization in the minds of most white Americans. The white lies are everywhere, not just in Alabama. White lies absolving white sins over and over and over. And yes, there is outrage at calls uh, from women like Amy Cooper and uh, Dr. Jennifer Schultz. You remember her? Uh, she was the one who called the cops on the black barbecuers in Oakland. There is uh, moments of outrage, but the problem is it passes all too quickly. I mean, in the latter case with Barbecue Becky, it was a joke for a week on SNL and the talk shows. And the joke itself, you know, took on an aspect of allowing white culture to dismiss the event. But, but these women are the modern equivalent of... Carolyn Bryant Donham, the lying white woman who got Emmett Till lynched in 1955. I mean, yes, in these two cases, they didn't get the lynching they were looking for, but only because the black people involved calmly held their shit together and recorded them with their phones. And you've got to remember that recordings of frightened phone calls to police are often used by judges in criminal cases in sentencing instructions to juries. So why lies? You've got to listen to this show. And honestly, it's, it's not all bleak. There is some hope in it too. There are voices of wisdom and healing that do prevail. But as they say in one quote that has really stuck with me, we need to expose all the white lies around us. Uh, especially uh, amongst those who pursue the agenda of the clan with the soft, harmless, demure words of the Rotary Club. Download this one now. Five stars, two thumbs up, all the marbles, and some of Trump's very fine people.
And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes As long as they don't move next door So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal On Delta Tonight For years, the monument to Emmett Till has been target practice for white fraternities from Ole Miss. But not any longer, as the new monument is bulletproof. But is it axe-proof, acid-proof, or able to resist the impact of a dump truck? Join us at 10 to find out. Yes, it's number one, it's Top of the Pops. It's just like we, we just keep losing. Just black people, period. We just keep losing. Every joint in the skeleton of our criminal justice system is greased by racial discrimination. There are many whites who are trying to solve the problem, but you never see them going under the label of liberals. That, that white person that you see calling himself a liberal is the most dangerous thing in the entire Western Hemisphere. He's the most deceitful. He's like a fox. And a fox is, almost, is always more dangerous in the forest than the wolf. You can see the wolf coming. You know what he's up to. But the fox will fool you. He comes at you with his mouth shaped in such a way that even though you see his teeth, you think he's smiling. You take him for a friend. Every joint in the skeleton of our criminal justice system is greased by racial discrimination. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. With skillful manipulating of the press, they're able to make the victim look like the criminal, and the criminal look like the victim. Every joint in the skeleton of our criminal justice system is greased by racial discrimination. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for. And that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave for the land of the So that's a wrap. Thanks for listening.
if you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Tell one person. Pick your favorite episode and uh, have them give it a listen. And if you uh, really want to help out, you can buy me a coffee by clicking the link in the show notes and on the webpage. The Muppet sounding voices on the Star Spangled Banner there were done by the super talented cartoon man. There's a link to his YouTube page in the transcript. The jazz is from Mario Rom's Interzone. I don't know who's providing your jazz, but I think you should switch to these cats. More light-hearted podcasts will be reviewed over the next few episodes, I promise. Let me know if you found any that uh, you've been enjoying, and I'll give them a listen. Until next time. Bye 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 bye.